Welcome to Vision Magnified. We are a podcast that showcases the blind community living limitlessly. Breaking barriers and smashing stereotypes. Proving that we are more than just our disability. Hey everybody, and welcome to the show this week. I'm Sasha. That's Amber. And I'm Amber. Oh, sorry. Sometimes she introduces herself, sometimes she doesn't, so I'm proactive nowadays. <laughs> we hope you've had a wonderful new year. And we are off to a start. We <laughs> um, call it that. So, um, yeah, I meant to be back um, the week of the second after I come back from um, Atlanta, but I came back sick. Uh, at least I don't know if I was sick or if I was starting to get sick and I was fighting it off like heck. So we didn't do an episode when I wanted to um, last week, I guess. Um so we're back at you guys this week with independent living skills, and we wanted to talk about um, all of that stuff. Uh, but first, let's go ahead and get the um, the uh, preliminaries out of the way. Amber, how was your New Year's Eve? My New Year's Eve was pretty quiet and uneventful. Um, honestly, like actually, like the kids went to sleep. One and uh, you didn't try to stay up till midnight. No, me and my guy did, but. Um, and and then the two old the two older kids that were home played video games, so it was kind of just like a typical day. Um, but the, yeah, we didn't really do much um, for New Year's Eve, and then New Year's Day was kind of uh, just a chill day. We made some food and you know that kind of thing. Didn't didn't really you know whole whole full out celebrate like you know normal but it was it was peaceful and that was nice well that's great um so for new year's eve we were celebrating my friend's birthday um so you guys might know shani she was on an episode of vision magnified previously it was her birthday and we were celebrating in a party bus um originally the plan was to go to a nightclub but i am very hesitant about being in a packed room with a lot of people during COVID. And I was talking about it to uh, one of the girls who's on the trip with us. And um, we decided, hey, let's do a party bus. Because the original idea was, let's go pick, take a party bus to pick up, pick up Shawnee's. But it would have taken a lot of money. But the party bus never kind of ran went away. And the next thing I know, we have a party bus for New Year's Eve night. And um, so, yeah, we were actually on a party bus. I've never been on a party bus. To me, it was like a big limo, um, and it was it was awesome. We just spent um, New Year's Eve driving around Atlanta and getting very drunk. That sounds like fun. I've been wanting to do one of those for my birthday or something, but like I never end up doing it. We should do it sometime. It's it's fun. Like it's it was you know just listening to songs and drinking a lot and trying to dance. Um, there was at one point where one of the girls landed like with her butt in her drink and then there oh. was one time where I flew back because of the way the driver was driving and I was trying to dance and I almost fell into the door but I corrected myself and fell back into the seat um so it's hard to drive it's hard to dance on those things when you're in heels oh, that's why you don't wear heels bruh but it was it was a really fun night it was a really really fun night with amazing people and I hope we get to do that again some po- at some point because it was it was a vibe. It was a vibe. It was fun. Um, 
And I feel like they say, what was it? Whatever you end the year doing is what you're going to be doing all year. So if I could party all year, I am okay with that. <laughs> I guess I'll be staying in the house all year. Wait a minute. I did that last year. Shit. Oh, well, I did it wrong. <laughs> mm. So this week, our topic is independent living skills. And um, Amber and I have both taken independent living skills um, at different points in our lives. And we kind of want to talk about our experiences and let you know how you might be able to obtain experiences like this for yourself or better, maybe. Um, So let's go ahead and start with what ILS is. Um, So to my mind, ILS or independent living skills is... um, a way that blind people or visually impaired people or low vision people um, can learn how to manage their day-to-day lives um, by making modifications to what sighted people do every day. So teaching you guys how to do laundry, um, teaching you how to cook or to clean your home, um, any number of things that help you live independently. Yeah. Um, any, Any differing thoughts on that? No, it's, I mean, that's exactly what it is. Um, and I think as you get older, you have more different sets of skills that, that you, um, bring in like, well, back when I was, back when I was growing up, we had, uh, check writing, for example, which I don't think they teach anymore, but yeah. So when Amber and I were younger, uh, we both grew up in the Orange County and LA areas of California. And we both attended uh, Orange County Braille Institute, which is incidentally where we met. Um, yep. And one of the youth activities they did was ILS or independent living skills. And there we learned um, some of the things we learned together, some separate. Um, we learned things like how to put bread in the toaster. I remember how they taught me to put the head of the bread up. I never gave it any thought before. Like, it was just something that as a child, I didn't think about that. You put the head of the bread up, and then you put it in the toaster. Like, didn't never give it any thought until now, until after that, and now I do. Um, they taught you phone etiquette. Um, I remember having to pick up the phone and talk to people and then hang up the phone. Like, how to answer properly. Um, yeah. They taught you how to not chew food on the phone. And to this day, like, for me, that's, like, a thing where I will not chew food on the phone. Um... And Amber, you said you remembered learning this this skill too. I did actually. Um, they did the role playing where you know you two people had their little phone, fake like non working phones, and I got to be the bad person where I would do all the wrong things on the phone. Like I would answer the phone like yo, and I would like on the phone and chew my you know pretend to chew and you know, all the, all the stuff you're not supposed to do. And then I think Sasha got to be the one that did it all right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, like I, I, I had no clue that there was phone etiquette. I just watched what my parents did. Hello, goodbye. Okay. Whatever, you know, whatever yeah. came in between. Like I didn't think that there was um, quote unquote etiquette at the time. I just did, you know, did as I saw my parents do. But, um, like, when they brought up all that stuff about not eating on the phone, not taking it into the bathroom with you, which my friends know I do it, but I'm a muter, so. I don't um, do it. I don't do it. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, my mom always told me about never bringing food into the bathroom. Um, you know, and I've always, that to this day, like, I've always stuck to that. You don't bring it in the bathroom. It's gross. 
Um, However, when you turn out, when you, when you end up becoming a parent, sometimes the bathroom is the only place you can have your snack. You just, as long as your bathroom is clean and you're not eating near the toilet, just be able to go in that room and shut that door and eat that Heath bar as fast as you can so the kid won't know that you have it. Yeah. I think for her, it was more like, you know, the saying, you don't shit where you eat. Yeah, you that makes sense. You shit. Like, but I mean... I think the one exception to the rule is wine, chocolate, and a bubble bath. Mm. I mean, my girls know. Um, or, or a shower beer, if you will. A shower beer. That is a thing. Please tell me about a shower beer. I've never heard of this. It's, it's pretty simple. You know, you're going to, because, you know, some of us don't have bathtubs. So you take your beer with you into the shower and you either sit it on the thing out just outside the shower like your stand or whatever or you sit it up in the window or whatever you sit it somewhere so the water doesn't but you can drink your beer while you're in the shower it's like wash my hair take a sip condition shampoo my hair condition yeah i would recommend not getting too drunk because then you will drop your beer and then that'll be very bad beer shower or shower beer okay i've got to remember that one Life lessons by Amber that most people probably should never follow. <laughs> um, so in ILS at the time, I think we learned a lot of things that, like like Amber said, check writing that we wouldn't use today. Um, but we also learned a lot of things that we would. Um, one of the things that we learned is how to cook. They taught us some preliminary things because at the time we were anywhere from like, I don't know, 7 to 12 or 13 um, yeah, I think the youth group was five to five to twelve, and then the teens were thirteen to seventeen. Yeah, so this would be in the five to twelve, I believe, because mm-hmm. I remember I was like nine or eight. Um, so it was basics, you know. Um, you were taught your basics on the phone, um, basics of like, um, cooking and cleaning, um, and I remember they were teaching me how to sew, and I was like, nope, this is not going to work. Um. So, yeah, so that was that during that time. Um, when we got into the teens group, I don't remember it being so much ILS. Um, and that's when they moved into, like, um, adolescent activities, like makeup and, like, hygiene and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we get into the adult years again, um, the subject of ILS came back up. And for me, they wanted me to do a live-in center um, but it wasn't possible for me to do that because I had pets and I wasn't leaving them for a month. Um, did you ever do a live-in center? I did not because I fought it um, because I was already out of the house when they wanted me to do it. Um, I already had an apartment and, you know, at that time a, a person. And, and, and I just, I mean, I was like, no, I'm not. I, they, they said, fine, let's compromise here, do this two-week thing. And they had me do two different versions of the two week live in and in both cases they came back to my voc rehab counselor and said yeah she knows all this stuff already uh we, she doesn't need to be here so so in my experience i was never talked to about um, a live-in facility or any sort of ILS after I graduated my VH teacher I felt like she really didn't do anything I feel like it's their job to prepare you when you're in your senior year for getting out into the world and I really don't feel like my teacher did that I think that she was just basically there to collect a check and I'll be real like I didn't get much help from her um she she didn't do anything um 
And I feel like if you're going to have a VH teacher, then your child or you should know what is expected of that VH teacher um, because they're there to do a job and you've got to keep them doing it. Um, So I was never told about voc rehab. I was never told about ILS um, or any live-in centers. The way that I found out about this is that uh, a friend of my friend was actually in a, a, a program and um, I was talking to him at the time, and I asked what they did. And then I asked how to get a hold of them, and he told me through Voc Rehab or through Brill Institute. Um, so I called Brill Institute, and they gave me this number for a place in the Bay Area of California. Uh-huh. And um, I think that's California School for the Deaf and Blind. Yes. If I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yes. In uh, or something like that. Yeah, so at the time, they did a month live-in program, and the way that she explained it to me is that you basically have roommates, and you live in an apartment, and you do a sort of, like, you go to your classes every day, and your classes teach you how to budget, how to cook and clean, how to use, like, different house cleaners, and, you know, how to sweep, mop, dust, vacuum, um, how to um, take care of your kitchen, how to basically do everything, go to the grocery store, um, everything you could think of that you would need to do as an adult. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the two week program that I did. Um, and at the end, they like were willing to help you find an apartment. Um, but unfortunately f- for me at the time, I was, I already had one of those and uh, I wasn't looking to move to the Bay Area. That was a dumb move. Okay, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so um, they never promised to do anything like that when they were talking to me. Um, they say a lot of their students will then kind of clump together and get an apartment. But they never really talk about any assistance after the month was over. Um, so at the time, it, it was not in my best interest to do it um, because I had other things going. But um, So I, didn't, I never did it. Um, and then flash forward a couple years and, um, I'm in vocation, vocational rehab now and they wanted to, um, they wanted me to do it. I said, but by that time, anything independent living wise, I'd either been taught by my family or I had taught myself to do because of necessity. Um, so again, I never did an independent, you know, I never did it, um, but I had a friend who did, and another friend who did, and she said that it was very, um, that they were adults, but but they were infantilized and treated like children. Um, mm. They were not allowed to, if, like, like I guess she met her, her boyfriend in ILS, and they were not allowed to associate um, outside of the classes, um, they tried to keep tabs on everything everyone was doing. It was very, um, it was very watchful. Like the staff was very watchful, and it made her uncomfortable. Um. So then I was like, you know what? It's, this is really probably not for me. Mm-hmm. Um. But then I had another friend go through it, and she said that she was very sheltered um, as a youth, and she said that it changed her entire world. That um, it really, really helped her because. Her parents did everything and she just expected and they just expected that they would always have to do everything because she was now blind. Yeah. And um, going to a live-in facility 
um, and learning everything from how to, you know, fold your clothes and do your laundry, match your socks, all that, to how to, you know, use a fork and a knife or how to cut, you know, chop and cut vegetables in the kitchen. Um, she said that that, you know, changed her whole life before she was afraid if her family was not like around her or immediately by her. And she actually ended up moving out through that program. Um, and it really, really helped her. So I think it depends. You have to know, um, you have to know your confidence level, I think. And then based upon that, maybe have them evaluate you and see what kind of classes will be necessary for you. So I think it is beneficial to everybody at some point to take some sort of independent living training. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do not think that every class is necessary for every individual. Yeah, no, it's absolutely not. And um, I feel that they need that the providers of independent living training need to realize that like some people might have already been out, but they struggle with how to sweep the floor or they struggle with, you know, one thing or another, but not another thing. Like, you know, they can cook fine. Everything's great. But the, the, the sweeping is the issue. Or the making sure if the walls are clean. I don't know, whatever. I didn't even know you had to clean walls until recently. So uh, anyway, <clears throat> yeah, I was always taught to wash the walls. Like you, you wash the walls because they get dirty fingerprints, feet prints, all that kind of stuff. So you wash the walls. But that's some stuff that we don't know because our eyes don't see it. We don't see the yeah. baseboards get dirty. We don't see that there's cobwebs in the corner. We don't see that the TV collects dust. That everything collects dust. And that's yeah. one of the things that these programs are good for um then we move into huh especially when you live in the desert everything collects dust (laughs) everything so then we move into adult years like really like i'm past my 20s let's say way past my 20s and i came out here and um did vote rehab with oregon commission for the blind and they wanted to put me in independent living skills and just to see what I knew and all that other stuff is part of their classes. Um, and I had known that Amber had already done it. So I want Amber to talk about her experience in ILS. And then I'll tell you why I hesitate to work with the commission as far as ILS. So I have, I've had a vision impairment since birth, but also I ended up with a retina detachment a few years back, which lost me my sight in my left eye. Um, so what I had learned in ILS using the site that I have, I didn't have that site anymore. So I went back and, and retook all, you know, some of the independent living skills classes. For example, I took the cooking class and they had me, basically you had to be under sleep shade, um, and or blindfold whatever you want to call it and so and you would you would learn the skills as though you have no sight um and for me that was really helpful because it uh helped me to be more careful and methodical about how I do things like before I lost the sight in my left eye I would you know open the oven and get the oven mitt and just grab something out of the oven and throw it up on the stove and the oven door is still open and I'm going to grab something out of a cabinet and I'm leaving the cabinet door open because I could see all those things um but 
after I lost more of my sight, I realized that the way that I was doing things before would be dangerous for me to do now that way. Um, and it actually, I mean, it helped me to, for example, I bought a KitchenAid mixer and I never used it because I was scared of it. I don't know why I was scared of it, but I was. And so I said, oh, we were making something one day and I was like, you know, I saw that she had, a, they had a KitchenAid and I was like, oh, I really would like to learn how to use that. And so she taught me how to use the KitchenAid and they, you know, they all work pretty much the same. So it, it was helpful. Um, and I still use a lot of the skills that I was taught in that class to this day. Um, I wish they had put me in the more like, oh, I don't even know what you would call it. House fixie skills. <laughs> um, like, you know, how, how to, yeah, like how to put the chain back on the toilet if it, if it falls or how to hang up a, something on your wall, um, how to do minor household repairs that most people can do, that kind of stuff. And I think that was part of like the woodworking class, which was kind of weird because it was the same teacher. But yeah, so I wish I would have learned a lot of those skills. Um but I think what happened is I had ended up getting a job, so I didn't have time for the class. So um, when I went to voc rehab um, and I was talking to them, um, one of the reasons that I was hesitant to do ILS is with them be is because they do require the sleep shade for a lot of their training, especially with mobility. Um, they want everyone under a sleep shade. And while I get that there are definitely... Um, pluses to doing this um as somebody who does not have a degenerative disorder or disease i felt like they're not appreciating the spectrum of blindness um not everybody's disease is or disability is degenerative uh not everybody ha you know knock on wood like i really don't know but you know as as far as i'm concerned like i've not my vision has not changed um it's not degenerative uh, and it doesn't show, show signs at this point that my eyes are aging in the way that my vision will change. Um, so I don't believe that being under a sleep shade would help me. Um, I feel like, um, if I feel like a lot of times, even with, um, certain agencies, the spectrum of blindness is not appreciated. Either they treat you as somebody who is total or they don't help you enough because they think you're too sighted. Um, we, you know, we do shows like this and we have groups um, of blind people now really pushing that blindness is a spectrum. And just like you would treat any other disability with a spectrum, you'd give them their spaces and their different ways of learning things. We need to be granted that as well. Not all services can be the straight way, same way across the board. Um, and I just really feel like I want my sight to be appreciated. I want what I have to be cherished, you know, and worked with just as much as I, I do it myself. Yes, 100%. Teach me how to use my hands. Teach me how to feel things. Teach me how to read Braille. Absolutely. But appreciate the sight that I have because I have it now. And I want to use it now. I don't want my eyes to atrophy. Um, that. So that's why I had such an issue with the sleep shade. 
Um, I will always use what I have because I fear my eyes going into atrophy. My left eye, I can see light and dark and shadows, but when my right eye is open, my left eye abdicates to the right eye. And what happens with that is that my left eye just allow, is, has been allowed to atrophy my whole life because I never did anything with it. So maybe if I had developed it, I'd have better sense of um, awareness on my left eye. But I always mm-hmm. just defaulted to the right. So because I didn't appreciate what I had, I feel like I've lost it. Um, and I think it's fascinating, actually, now that I think about it, that my, both of our eye, uh, our eye conditions while similar they're different um our left eyes both actually have always been our bad eye you know even before i lost the sight in my left eye which i'm it's one of those i'm grateful that i didn't that i lost it in the left and not the right but also i'm not grateful because i'm mad that i lost it but yeah no the left eye has always been the bad eye yeah um she has uh optic nerve hypoplasia and i have optic nerve dysplasia so it's it's still a thing with our um optic nerves and i think that's it's strange maybe i don't know maybe there's a reason that the left eye maybe the left eye develops last mm. and and we just didn't have enough time for it to develop i don't know and it's fascinating that because you had we we're both well we were both born left-handed yeah i was catholic into right-handedness my family yeah no they didn't my my uncle was a lefty my grandma one of my grandmas was a lefty so i there was somebody bound to be another lefty and i you know part of it might have been hereditary but part of it might have just been part of this whole condition that nobody really knows a lot about yeah um so yeah i mean I, i i'm not averse to sleep shade training every once in a while that's fine i i'll give me heightened senses any day but mm-hmm. I I really am very careful with the sight that I have because it's precious to me. I could not imagine to my friends who are losing their vision and their vision wakes up different every day. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine what they must be going through. You know, right. I can't. One day you know what your child's face looks like and the next day less and less is into focus. And one day it may all go away. And I can't imagine that. And mm-hmm. I empathize wholeheartedly with that because I there's no way that I can imagine, but, you know, I, I'm there and I, I love them through it and I'm supportive, but I can't imagine that. And I, I never want to um, put myself in the position where my eye atrophies because I didn't appreciate what I had. Yeah. I mean, um, it was a source of anxiety for me when, because I, I went to the Commission for the Blind kind of pretty soon after I had my retinal detachment in my left eye and lost that sight, I went in and was like, okay, we need to learn how to do this again, all these things. And, you know, I was grateful that in the beginning, you know, because they have a rule where like, if you're at the commission, you should be under sleep shade if you can see, like when you're walking about the building and things like that um equal playing field and all that i guess but um it caused me so much anxiety and i was having panic attacks every time i had to go into the commission that they allowed me for a good while to just wear darker sunglasses and i usually wear dark sunglasses outside anyway um 
due to the light sensitivity. And so that, that put me at ease a little bit, but when they started requiring me to be under sleep shade for things again, um, they do this wilderness bonding thing in the beginning when you first start classes. And I, I was, I was freaked out. I was, I was like, I have to go to the bathroom. I have to go in and I have to touch things. And yes, people who, you know, are totally blind often have to touch more things than people who are low vision, but I'd never had to do that. And it, it just sent me into a whirlwind, like of, of anxiety, but, um, you know, I did it in things like the cooking class and the technology class that I, I think I was in, I think I was taking voiceover is what it was. And that experience allowed me to be a little more comfortable with going through O&M with a sleep shade because when I was taught mobility, uh, orientation and mobility, I, in, in high school, in elementary school, I was, you know, taught to use my eyes. It was a big thing back then. If you were mainstreamed in, 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 mm-hmm. in school, use your eyes, you, you know, and that's, and I think that's part of, you know, you, both of our problems with the whole sleep shade thing too. We were taught to use our eyes um, above anything. And to the, you know, like she, they had me, you know, under sleep shade to do some of my O&M training. And then after a few weeks, then she brought in like me using my monocular and that kind of, and, and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it was, it was anxiety inducing. And <laughs> I had many fights with my O&M instructor, um, you know, with, uh, with, with regards to the sleep shade and with regards to not having headphones and, and ear, ear pods in my ears. Um, so I feel like the thing that you said is like they want everybody on an even playing field, but the fact of the matter yeah. is that that's not how life works. Blindness no. is a spectrum 100%. Like when we keep, we say this, we say this, we say this again, because not only does the mainstream or the public need to realize this, but so do the agencies that work with blind individuals. Mm-hmm. We are very different even so um two of my friends have different uh, the same condition but even though they have the same condition their sight is very different mm-hmm. the way they see the world is very different and yeah. so i think that it's very antiquated thinking that everybody should be on a different on, on the same playing field because we're not we are a spectrum of sight loss and it ranges from having low vision to having total, complete darkness. Um, and I think that that needs to be appreciated. And I think that we need to develop different techniques and different ways of working together without with these agencies um, that are uh, individualized. There's um, got to be a middle ground. Like, there, there has to be a middle ground between using the sites you have and those, you know, who are, are completely blind and learning that way. There has to be some kind of a middle ground. Well, uh, what I say is, you know, sure, once in a while doing it on the sleep shade, is, there's no harm in that because it does teach me to use my other senses, my hands, my taste, my, you know, uh, my smell, all that kind of thing. I get that. But to insist that, that I would be under a sleep shade for you know all the time that I'm there is a little much because 
I am not total and I don't feel appreciated. I don't feel like my sight is appreciated if you're asking me to be under a sleep shade. And do I have any problem with people who are totally blind? Absolutely not. I think that they are amazing for being able to get out in the world and still do what they do. I would be lost without the vision I had. So mm-hmm. I appreciate it and I respect it. Um, and I don't feel like it's right for me to pretend that I am on their playing field and I'm when I'm not. I don't have it as, as hard as they do. And I shouldn't, you know, have to pretend that I even know what that's like for 30 minutes out of the day because I don't and I hope I never do. And you bring up the um, the concept of pretending. And that was one of the issues that I had about being out in public in a sleep shade with a cane. Um, I Even on O&M lessons, I had people you know, at, well, are, what, what are you doing? Why are you, why, why are you pretending to be blind? And we have such a problem with that. Any, anyway, with people and even family members, uh, you know, accusing people of faking that walking around with a white cane and a sleep shade, is just gonna, you know, and no, it's we shouldn't perpetuate give a, that. Yeah. We shouldn't give a crap what people think, but also, you know, it's, they're going to think it and they're going to say it and they're going to, you know, I mean, I just don't, like, I would never, um, I would never want, um, someone who's totally blind to ever think that I believe that I know what it's like to be them and putting a sleep shade on me for 30 minutes to, to be in their world. I don't know if that's disrespectful or not. And I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I understand and I appreciate every different individualized way of seeing. We are all different. Um, even our, though our conditions might be the same, the way we see is different. And I think mm-hmm. that um, those agencies who um, set out to appreciate us as blind individuals need to accept us as blind individuals and work with us as blind individuals. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, would I love to do uh, independent living skills now just to, you know, just to, because I'm always wanting to learn different ways of doing things. 100%. Would I be averse to learning uh, more by feel than sight? Absolutely. But I don't think I need a sleep shade to do that. Yeah. And I don't mind. And it's probably because I'm in a situation where my vision could change at any any moment with the retina detachments where if I learn it now, I'll still use my sight that I have, but if I learn it now, it may not be such a shock to my system if I ever have to use those skills that way. I feel like when you are learning to be a mobility instructor or any kind of instructor with the blind, you're taught under a sleep shade. And that is wonderful for for those working with people who cannot see. But what about working with an eye patch for those of us who only have one eye? learning how we work, learning how to work with your eyes dilated with an eye patch to see what those of us who see through blurry vision, you know, what What about doing different things to understand the different ranges of sight that we have? You can make eye patches in all different varieties with spots cut out to see through different types of visions. One of uh, my friends sees through scarred corneas, so it's like she's looking through glass. What about mm-hmm. making, you know, little spots in the eye patches so that you can see 
speckled vision. You know what I mean? Like there's totally different ways of doing things without just putting your instructors under sleep shades. Like there's all different ranges of blindness. And I think that you need to work in that, that way of being to appreciate that there is all that different way of seeing. Right. And I think that's where living in California actually and and going through the Braille Institute programs like helped us because they kind of did that. They, they kind of worked with you where you were at with your vision. And, um, you know, while there were many things that were, that I look back and I'm like, uh, you know, they didn't get that kind of right. The one thing that you can ask a blind person that will make them feel a lot more at ease with you is what do you see? What can you see? How do you see? If you're going to be an instructor and you're going to work with me and you ask me, how do you see? Like, what are the things that you can see? I'm going to want to work with you because you're trying to appreciate where I'm coming from. Take notes on that. Take note, not just on what we can and can't do. Take notes on how we see. Work with me based upon how I see and how you might be able to optimize the vision that I have. But then, and, and if you work with me like that and you show me that respect, then I'm 100% willing to work with the fact that if I ever lost my vision, you know, I can do a sleep shade for a moment and with the understanding that I have no idea what it's like to be total. And I know, I hope I never do, but right. I appreciate what they go through. Like and it's a fear good. of, I think, every blind person to end up with complete sight loss mm-hmm. and I so like I I hope this doesn't come off as like um I feel people who are total I 100% um respect them because right. when I see somebody who's total out and about just doing their thing and going about I don't think oh my god how courageous I don't think that because I think that that's condescending what I mm-hmm. think is respect I respect that like, you get up, you get out of bed, you get out of your house, and you do your shit. You don't let the fact that you cannot see any damn thing stop you. And I respect that. Yeah. And it also goes back, the thing you were saying about asking people what they can see, that goes back to the VH teachers have teaching the students, their kids, how to express what they can and can't see. Mm-hmm. I had a hard time with that because... I don't have blurry vision. I don't have spotted vision. I don't have, like, my vision is, like, everything is clear, the things that I can see. But, like, if I'm talking to you, I I thought everybody had black eyes for the longest time because I couldn't tell that people had, you know, color in their eyes. Um, You know, I can't read the sign that's up above the aisle in the grocery store. You know, being able to explain things like that came with being an adult and having had to do it for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's the thing that, that instructors who work with children can do is that they can help give them a vocabulary. Like tell, you know, like let's talk to Jane. Okay. So can you see that building over there? Well, yes, I can. Okay. So do you see, like I see the windows. Can you see the windows? Like I see the balconies. Can you see that there are balconies? Talk to them. Really get in and talk to each individual person and find out what they're really dealing with and learn from that how to work with them. Exactly. Oh, an M teacher in high school kind of did that because 
she saw me several times getting up to get on a bus that was a semi truck, like a big rig truck, like or a trash truck. So, you know, she's like, okay, I could tell that wasn't a bus. Like, let's, how, how do you see it? And I'm like, well, I saw the lights and heard the big sound and assumed it was going to be the bus. Getting to know your students or your clients is a big part of that. One of the most helpful things when I was in ILS as a kid was that the instructor that I worked with, it was this, this college person who was volunteering. Like, we worked a lot with volunteers. I remember he asked, can you find, like, if I show you, like, a piece of bread, where do you think the top of that piece of bread is? Can you find it? Can you see the outline of it? What does it look like to you? When you're looking at the phone, can you tell what kind of phone is it? Can you tell how you would have to dial? What do you see? And then based upon what I could see, that's how he tailored working with me. And that, mm -hmm. to me, made me feel so validated. Let's say if I asked you to sweep the floor and to pick up the things that you swept, how would you do that? Like, do, can you see to use the dustpan and the broom to sweep that stuff together. Like I would ask her things and then based upon what she says, I would tailor my lesson for that moment. One of the things that independent living skills teach is budgeting. <laughs> Amber, how are you at budgeting? <laughs> well, uh, I just bought a really large box of stuff for my cat. <laughs> hey, that doesn't count. That's always in the budget, huh, baby? I have my dog right and, here. And now I can't afford to buy the thing on Amazon that I want. <laughs> oh, so you, so what? You put a responsibility before a want, a need before a want. I guess I did, didn't I? Oh God. She's growing oh. up, ladies and gentlemen, right before our very eyes. <laughs> along with the blindness comes or well doesn't come with but i it comes with for me the adhd and the impulsiveness yay one of the most helpful things that my mom ever said to me um when i was 17 i remember we were in some sort of burger place and she said you need to know, learn how to budget your money i said i know how to budget my money she goes how do you budget your money and i said i pay my bills she goes okay but she goes well what if you see something you want i said i'll get it if i can afford it she goes, well, what you need to learn is what is a need and what is a want. You need a roof over your head. You need food in your stomach. You need your electricity on. Like, these are things that you need. A want is I want to go out to this party. I want to buy this item. That's a want, things that you can do without. And she said, as long as your needs are taken care of first, then you can concentrate on your wants. This is why I pay my bills earliest I can, and then I yep. concentrate on what I can play with. Um, because it's helpful. It's helpful to put it in that perspective. It's like, are all my needs taken care of for the month? Paid the cable, paid the phone, paid the electricity, paid the rent, paid my transportation, you know, paid all that stuff. Like, yeah, I'd say they're all taken care of. Cool, what do I have to play with? How much of it do I want to spend? And that's the way budgeting should be taught. Like. Anytime I've taken, because I've tried taking courses on budgeting or listening to a podcast and they have you pull out this budgeting sheet and you write down your income and you write down all the stuff. My brain doesn't work that way. Like That's so if, somebody, if somebody had just told me when I was younger, pay your bills first, I probably would have been a lot better at budgeting. But also I think it comes from how you were raised and what you saw growing up. Did you see you know, did you see people go shopping all the time? 
you know, I never saw, I know the bills got paid, but I never saw my mom pay, my mom and dad Same. paying the bills. But I saw them go shopping or I saw them take us out to eat. Or so in my head, I'm like, you know, I don't know. I, it, it, in my teenage and younger head, I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Well, you know, you just use the money as you get it. Um, so even when I got like an allowance, I would be, I could not save. And I still don't have, I have a hard time saving money um, because I'm like, fuck, I've got to spend this money. I've got to spend it, you know. Because I don't know, like, in my head, if I don't spend it, it's going to go away, maybe. But that's a whole other issue. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I think it also has to do with how you're brought up and and how the people who raised you, how their relationship with money was. I think um, that's really, really valid. I never saw my parents pay bills, but I did always hear my mom talking about, you know, bills. I I knew she paid my grandparents a certain amount for rent and food, well, for rent and uh, electricity, things of that nature, water and whatnot. And then I would see my grandpa every Sunday. He'd bring out this little, like, shelf thingy that had his, like, coupons, his bills, all that stuff, and I would see him go through it every day, uh, every every week. And I'd, I'd, I'd see him at the kitchen table sometimes for hours just sorting through, clipping coupons, all that kind of stuff. So, like, I understood that, like, there was a time that you did this, to make sure you had the money to keep your household going. But mm-hmm. I didn't really, it didn't really um, click until like I was having this talk with my mom. So it's kind of like a, a mantra that I would say in my head, like rent, food, transportation, phone, electric, cable storage, rent, food, transportation, phone, electric, cable storage. Like I would say it to myself as like a little mantra. Like, so whenever it came time that I got paid, um, I would make sure, like I always had these things like rent plus food plus transportation plus phone plus electric so and so on and i would do the math and i would say okay so my expenses are like 1300 or whatever you know um and then i would be like okay so this is how much that no matter what has to be in my bank account next month like no matter how many times i get paid this week or this this month no matter how much i spend this month this has to be in my account to pay the bills for next month and then Mm -hmm. um and so then what I would do is I factored in before I took a job, I factored in how much I was going to make, how much they might take out of taxes. And I always like to overestimate yep. when it comes to money. Um, and then once I did that, I'm like, okay, so I'll be making X amount per month. Okay, so X amount is um, bills and X amount is like saving, spending, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I would divide that in half or I would maybe divide it like 60, 30, 40 or like 70 30 or whatever however i wanted to spend and save um some months the 70s would get the savings some months the 30 would get the savings you know so i could have wiggle room and and you know money to play with and that's basically the way that i broke it down because to sit there and think oh you get your sheet you write a ledger it's so boring i'm already spaced out balancing a checkbook like when that was a thing and some people still do it even though they don't write text like they write everything out like that and I cannot I cannot and it's you know like and I think it's a lot harder for those of us who get paid once a month those who are on SSI SDI things like that because that chunk of money hits your account and you haven't had money for the past two weeks because you paid your bills and you're like yeah I have money and then you're like, oh, no, I don't. 
Yeah. Most blind people, I won't say all, because some people got it like that somehow, but like most of us face a time when we will live on SSI. Um, and that is difficult living. So if you're doing it just on SSI, no housing, um, no family help, then my heart goes out to you because that's hard. Um, mm-hmm. You get less than $900 a month in a lot of places. Yep. Um, like the max here in Oregon is $800. Yep, and in California, I think they've bumped it to a thousand. Yeah, um, and we have California prices in Oregon, but we have lower cost of living uh, benefits. Kinda. We just don't have the sales tax. Yeah, it's changing. (laughs) Things are changing. We our max here is like eight eight oh six or something like that. It's, It's very difficult to live on SSI. It's very difficult to budget for SSI because. Most of your bills are going to, or all of your bills are going to take up most of that check, if yep. not all. It's it's difficult to keep a budget, um, and that's why a lot of us try to get jobs. Because in some places, uh, like here in California, I think they might be changing it, but when I lived in California when I was, you know, before, before I had moved to Oregon and back, if you're on SSI, you can't have food stamps. Mm-hmm. But... I think they they're changing that, or it's a pilot pro something where where they're allowing it. But it if you have kids, it kind of f's that whole situation up too. All other story. So like, I can say that when I was living on my own and I didn't have any housing assistance, I would spend the money on my rent, and then it was a crapshoot whether I paid my electric bill. Uh, I certainly didn't have a phone or a cell phone until, you know, thankfully, you know, my parents allowed me on their bill when they got a cell phone. But yeah, it was a, it was a crapshoot. Like I got my rent paid. I have a roof over my head, but I don't have any food. My electricity may or may not get shut off unless I can find a place that pays that, which is very rare. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, you you absolutely have nothing. Yeah. And it's, so I'll give you a good example. So I was getting like 9.05 or whatever last time I lived in California. My rent was 7.05. Um, so that left me $200 to get food, pay my bills, and get any needed toiletries. Sometimes I was using Dawn to take showers. Um, sometimes I, thankfully, my landlady had planted a garden. And... Um, I ate off that garden a lot, and I'm thankful I was able to do that. Um, and I harvested a lot of veggies and froze them, and that lasted me a very long time. And if I had not done that, I don't know what I would have done because I did not make the. We we on SSI do not make enough to keep our heads above water. We don't make a living wage on SSI. So, um, people who think that blind people just want to sit home and make money off the government. Um, I really hope that this is eye-opening for you because we do not make money on SSI. We make barely enough to make rent. As a matter of fact, right now, um, because of COVID and everything getting shut down, I'm on SSDI, which is my social my social security disability. Um, and I only make, like, well, let's just say I make so little that it wouldn't even pay my rent. And my rent's a little over 700 yeah. Um, and that's, I mean, and that's the thing is, you know, then you have, you know, say you, in my situation, I worked, you know, for on and off for a good portion of my 
life. But when I lost the sight in my left eye, they were able to give me my SSDI. Yeah. It's still not enough. Still not enough. Even though I paid into it, even though I worked, it's, you know, maybe $200 more than what Social Security will give you, SSI will give you. Now, um, with what I make on disability, um, I'm obviously you can tell I'm I'm not making it right, but because I knew how to budget, because I knew how to save, that's how I'm I'm fine. Like I'm very okay right now. Um, and technically, we're not supposed to do that. Another thing um, about independent living skills is to get from place to place. How do you do that? Uber's expensive. Well, then there's paratransit. Well, with paratransit. Oftentimes, you have to, I guess, again, not understanding blindness as a spectrum, you have to play up your blindness. I cannot mm-hmm. tell you how many people have told me, oh, you're going for an interview with them. Oh, you got to play up your blindness. You have to say that you see things that or don't see things that you do because they will not take you if you don't. I was told by my vocal rehab counselor that this is what I would need to do because they will not take me unless I could not see anything. And which is absolutely ridiculous because like how many, you know, I feel like how many times am I going to say this in an, in an episode, but blindness is a spectrum. Um, and I apologize, but I say this a lot because it's like these agencies who work with us that have low vision or no vision or somewhere in between, they don't understand that. And I think that we as blind people, we cannot hide our blindness anymore. We need to drop the mask. We need to get out there and we need to start talking about it because until we show them how much of a spectrum it is, we cannot expect the mainstream just to understand it. Mm-hmm. And the, I mean, how, how you're talking about paratransit and having to play up your blindness and pretend that you're blinder than you are. Like I've had people go as far as to tell me, you need to go in there. You don't do your hair. Don't do your makeup. Make sure your clothes don't match. Um, make sure that you're not as articulate as you really are. Because you have to play down to their stereotype. And right. that's disgusting. This is why blind TikTokers out there say blindness looks like me. This is what blindness looks like. Like, yes, I do my makeup. Yes, I do my hair. Yes, I wear these clothes. I can walk. I can talk. I can articulate. Blindness looks like me. It is our job as blind individuals to help the public understand our disability because the media is not going to do it. Christy Khan, who is a TikToker, um, she's somebody that I follow um, and she was talking about something about name uh, to to stitch her video and name a um a movie or a show where blind people are misrepresented and it's not always that we're misrepresented i mean that does happen 100 percent, but it's always what it always is nine times out of ten is we have the cane the sunglasses mm-hmm. the big brimmed hat we're all totally blind like that's how everything uh depicts a blind person and mm-hmm. that's not it that's not it, bro. That's not it. It's very disconcerting to see one picture of what blindness is. Not every blind person is total. Not every blind person, um, you know, lives off the government. Not every blind person is male or female. Not every blind person is straight or gay. Not every blind person is one thing. Where it's all of us. It's all encompassing. Not every blind person is old or young. You know, and I know I'm preaching to the choir for most of you guys who listen to the podcast, but for those of you who are sighted who might be catching this podcast, it's incredibly important 
that you do your part now that you know to spread awareness. Because, you know, I feel like a lot of TikTok is exactly preaching to the choir. But for anyone who comes in who's not blind who follows us, I hope that they understand and that they learn to accept the spectrum of blindness. I have people in my own family who think that I'm faking it or who think that I'm pretending because mm. I, I don't, you know, because I can see. Because I don't walk into walls every 10 seconds. Like, they don't see the times where I think I'm confident and I'm feeling good about myself and I walk into a fire hydrant. You know, they don't see the times where I'm about to cross the street and then this car, this car that's totally sighted person, he makes a mistake, but I blame it on myself. Mm-hmm. They don't see, like, the things that happen when nobody's looking. We need more people to understand that we are perfectly capable but sometimes the world isn't. Yeah. And that's when we that's when we get more down on ourselves, you know what I mean? I guess my solution going forward is that if you are doing independent living skills, any kind of instruction, talk to your clientele. Ask how they see. And don't just ask them once, ask them all the time. Like, <laughs> "Hey, we're doing this new environment, this new subject, this is different weather. How do you see today? How are you seeing this right now?" Always ask me if it's coming from a place where you genuinely want to know to help me do something you would like to teach me. Ask me a million times for all I care. Yeah. And the thing, too, is for those of us who are vision impaired, those of us who are blind, um, low vision, whatever, advocate for yourself. Like if they're not asking you how you see, you tell them how they how you see. And I would bring it up to, you know, um, I really would prefer if you ask me how I see. Um, and don't just ask me once, you know, ask me in different weather, ask me different times of day. Like when we're working together, always ask me because it could change. Yep. Um, we need to start giving each other the vocabulary, even as adults, to speak up and advocate for ourselves. So on that note, I'm going to go ahead and say thank you so much for listening to our show this week. Um, it was really interesting talking about living independently. If you do want information on how to get in touch with your independent living skills center, I would highly suggest starting with um, your Voc Rehab or Commission for the Blind or Lighthouse Guild in your area, and they can direct you as to where to go because every state and sometimes every county is different. And if you don't have one, if you don't know about one of those in your area, also look into your Centers for Independent Living. Oftentimes they work with people of all different types of disabilities so they do have resources that you might not be aware of that in your area to help you and if you don't think you have any blind services in your area um, look for the closest surrounding area that has blind services and contact them tell them where you live and see if they can direct you to somewhere closer or if there is a way that you can be uh, relocated temporarily to go through their services. And especially if you are very close to, like on a border of two states, sometimes it's feasible if there's nothing in your area to go over the border to the next state over, um, depending on the, the organization. But most importantly, especially if you feel like you lack a lot of independent living skills and you would like to change that, don't give up. Continue calling if they don't call back. Just continue calling until somebody gets a hold of you. And um, make sure that you advocate for yourself and get those independent skills that you need 
to help you live your best life. Well, thanks guys for listening and we will um, talk to you next week. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the podcast this week. We hope you enjoyed the show and look forward to seeing you next time. You can find us as Vision Magnified Official on TikTok and Instagram and on Twitter as VMO Podcast. See you next time.